Professor Beeland, I wanted to get you on the call today because I, I've become more and more fascinated with entrepreneurship and Austrian economics, and I follow you on Twitter. And you, you put out some great tweets, and you recently put out an article, uh, or at least tweeted an article that had to do with something between the interplay of Austrian economics and entrepreneurship. And I really just, I want, I reached out to you to see if, if I could explore those topics more with you today and you graciously accepted. So uh, I, just to start out with, I'd like to know what got you so interested in entrepreneurship? Well, that's a great question, actually. Um, it, it, really is, I mean, for whoever is interested in Austrian economics and who's interested in the dynamics of the economy and how everything works, I mean, where economic growth comes from, uh, where our well-being and standard of living comes from, um, how we produce wealth, all of those things, which are sort of very core to understanding the economy and, and, and figuring out where we're at and where we might be heading. Uh, that that is entrepreneurship, and I mean Mises uh, talks about how entrepreneurship is the driving force of the market economy, and that's exactly right. I mean, the, it requires a lot of other things too to have a a a good, well functioning market economy. But entrepreneurship is what what makes things happen. It's it's the the change agent, if you will, or it's really the it is the driving force. And so you you were always interested in, in that driving force and, and do, were you an entrepreneur yourself? I sort of was, I mean, I, I wasn't always interested in the concept. So the concept uh, of entrepreneurship in, in, in the realm of market theory, uh, that's something that has become more and more interesting to me in, in time. I mean, I started out in, in political philosophy really, uh, and then transitioned into economics and Austrian economics, uh, and then into a theory of the firm, and then into entrepreneurship. Um, as as far as my background, I, I started a business along with other students in high school. That's what that was my first, um, the first time I was exposed to to sort of running a business and and doing that sort of thing. And then straight after high school, I started a business with a friend of mine. Uh, and then I started a couple of other businesses as well, um, one alone and one with my with my wife. <clears throat> and uh, they didn't do very well. Uh, well, they didn't do well at all. Uh, but it it was sort of a it was a, a very in interesting experience, and it sort of it it made clear to me that. The, the way we usually approach things and with the way we <clears throat> excuse me the, the way we think about the world and the way we think that it will work when we start a business and so forth it it has very little to do with um how it actually works and I, I think that has to do with what what Mises talks about in human action he says something to the fact that economics is the type of study that uncovers how things actually work and and shows us that it's actually the other way around. It's not <clears throat> it's not what we think. Uh, it, it works the other way around completely, and that's that's the big power of economics that we can sort of uncover uncover that. And entrepreneurship is it's the same thing. I mean, it's a it's an important part of the economy, and it works not at all what the way you would think it works when when you 
um, when you just sort of dive in and, and, and want to and try to start a business. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've had some of those same experiences where, where you try to start something and you start putting things into practice and it doesn't it didn't quite work out the way I thought it might. Um, do you think that you talked a little bit about understanding uh, economics versus practice? Uh, do you think that understanding or having a deeper understanding of economics or specifically Austrian economics can help someone put into practice uh, become a better entrepreneur? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I do it. So uh, many of the, the 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 sort of errors, the fundamental errors that many entrepreneurs um, commit, and that that is the a reason to, for why they fail. Is that they 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 approach it as a production process rather than as a value facilitation process, uh, and what I mean by that is that usually the way we think of entrepreneurs is that they want to produce something, so they go about figuring out what the costs are and how to produce it, set up a production process. Uh, they produce the goods, and then there they are, and sort of if you build it, they will come, and then usually they fail because they haven't haven't figured out the market, haven't really checked with consumers if they're willing to pay for this sort of thing or exactly what it is consumers are looking for. Um, and I mean, what Austrian economic theory uh, shows very clearly, and which is, is true too, is that it value goes the other way around, right? So production obviously starts with uh, digging a hole in the ground and, and extracting iron ore and then smelting it to get iron and then they produce something out of iron. But value is in the using of a thing to satisfy your want. So it, you are a consumer to begin with. So you have to uh, figure out how to, how to use it. And whatever is used to produce that thing that, that satisfies your want has value because it contributes to that experience you get when you're using it. So what an entrepreneur should do is not start with production and just uh, think of something that they want to do, but rather think, okay, how can I serve this customer segment or the, these consumers? How can I, how can I produce something that will really make them better off? Something that is of huge value to them in on their terms. Okay, how can how can I do that? Uh, and then from there, when you've when you've uh, sort of estimated that that very valuable contribution. You can figure out what what price can be charged for it. So the price must be much lower than the value, or they wouldn't buy it, of course. Uh, and when you have an estimated a price that you can charge, then uh, you can start thinking about okay, so how am I actually going to go about producing this thing? And of course, the question also: Should I produce this thing? I mean, can I make a profit out of producing this thing that that facilitates this much value for the consumer? So. In, instead of just assuming all these costs and sort of adding the costs together and then making up a price and then selling, what you should be thinking is, okay, what, what is the value I'm creating here? What price can I charge so that the consumer thinks it's a great deal and they, they won't just buy more of it? Uh, and then my job as an entrepreneur is to figure out how to produce this at such low cost that I can get a profit. Uh, e even though the, the price is sort of dependent on on the value that the consumer places in the product. So it, it's it's really about thinking about it the exact 
other way around, just like Mises mentioned. Yeah, so it's more of the servant mentality. Um, what can I do to serve my fellow man and provide value to him uh, that he otherwise can't get in the marketplace? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so I mean, in the marketplace, what's so beautiful with the market is that the best way of serving yourself is by serving others, right? So, and, and that's what the what entrepreneurs do. They try to figure out how to serve a certain subset of the population or the, their customers uh, to the best degree possible. And if they do that well and are able to keep the costs low, then they can they they basically get a cut, right? The profit. So the more they serve the consumers, the higher price can be charged for the product, which means it's easier to cover the costs, which means you can you can get a higher profit out of it. So there, there are no contradictions, right? So I, I think that it's really beautiful that we can be sort of self-interested. Uh, and because of the interactions and the specialization and how the market works, uh, we serve ourselves best by serving others to the best degree possible. Is there a, it seems to me that there's, a lot of creativity and imagination that's involved with entrepreneurship from reading biographies of great entrepreneurs. Is there a way, how do you see that creativity element interplaying with uh, economics and, and learning more about how to become a better entrepreneur? Well, I mean, you don't have to be super creative. I mean, usually we, we think of entrepreneurs as um, innovators and, and as these sort of great thinkers or they're doing something magnificent, but you don't actually have to do that to be a, a good entrepreneur. I mean, it's, it's entrepreneurship is not about the ideas. It's about the implementation. So another way of putting that is that it's not about the invention. It's about the innovation. That is have taking an idea, good or bad, yours or someone else's, and then transforming it into a good or service that can be of, of value to consumers. So that, that is, that is the most, important part of entrepreneurship and it's also the hardest part and that's really what what investors are looking for too when they're investing in in entrepreneurs they're, they're looking they're checking out the the founder the entrepreneur and thinking hmm, can this guy actually make it happen i mean they're not buying the idea they're thinking okay can this guy with our help and with our money actually bring this about and make this a valuable experience for customers so that there are enough customers willing to pay enough of a price to cover the cost, right? So um, you, you're sort of right that economics itself doesn't seem all that creative, right? So <laughs> it's not innovative. Um, and, and I mean, that that is true. Economics just, uh, well, Austrian economics uh, finds a place for the entrepreneur. So it really the entrepreneurial function in the marketplace. So. So studies it, analyzes it, tries to find out what what entrepreneurs do as sort of a class, if you will. Um, and and that's, I mean, it, what what that class does is creative because they're figuring out new ways of doing things and new things to do, right? But but that um, economic theory that doesn't necessarily help you with being creative. On the other hand, it, it does help you with figuring out how to how to do it, right? So how to think, how to put value first and cost second, for instance. Okay, yeah. You mentioned invention versus innovation, and innovation is the thing that's 
really difficult to to do is, is that why well, I don't I, I don't know if that's true actually I mean the the just having an idea lots of people have ideas I'm sure we've all had ideas but putting something into practice bringing it to market all those things that go into a product or a service and making it valuable for a customer are are those the kind of things that you teach or are you more focused on the theory of Austrian economics or do you do you also teach like actual hands-on how do you innovate and and bring a product to market right so i i do mostly theory a little now and then i teach um more more hands-on courses but uh at at a well a, a low level sort of introduction level courses in college um it, it's more about trying to get the students to think about what a business actually does so so what what is the role of a, a new business what is the role of the entrepreneur in the economy and how do you think about all these things cuz you have to put so many things together right you have the financing is one thing but then you have the hr and you have need to do bookkeeping and you need to uh, keep track of contracts and all this stuff too so there there all these pieces need to be put together so in a sense it's teaching a business plan or or figuring out the business model so it's it's creative um in the business model sense, which which to me is it's really the core. I mean, it's what you mentioned there with innovation and how to make it valuable to someone, right? So the business model is how you do business. Uh, it's everything from how do you charge for something? Is it like a an upfront fee or is it an, a fee after the fact or is it a subscription? Those are very different uh, types of services. And how do you how do you figure out how to make this? as valuable as possible for the customer out there right so so those things it's i don't really teach sort of imagination or ideation uh th this type of uh inventions and things like that that's usually what is done in uh, in uh, like engineering colleges and things like that where, where they actually develop products right but they they stay on the technology side where they figure out uh new types of devices or new cool features and and uh, things like that. But whether it actually has value, I mean, th that's where I come in as an, as an economist and especially Austrian economist and entrepreneurship scholar uh, to, to try to figure that out. I mean, how do you make this valuable to other people and what, 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 what methods are there to use? What, what uh, best practices are there to figure that out? Um, things like that right so but i i teach most mostly theory uh because it's it's a to me entrepreneurship is to a great extent it's about thinking about entrepreneurship and the economy in the right way yeah yeah i heard a a conversation that you had with hunter hastings uh that i was listening to this morning where you you were evaluating um the the big tech model of industry and where the the person using the product or using the service like twitter say is actually the product and that there could be a lot of value in and opportunity in in a, a different service model and you were theorizing about that do you do you have any things on the horizon that you see like that that really get you excited about entrepreneurship i mean when you see things that your theory tells you 
there's there's a lot of untapped value here. Do you have anything that especially excites you lately? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in terms of technology, anything that is decentralizing, so with the whole blockchain, not necessarily cryptocurrencies. I mean, that's interesting too, but how that can be used and decentralized systems in, in, in general. I mean, I, I was a systems developer in a previous life. Um, and, and distributed systems and decentralized uh, solutions, I mean, that's, I think that's where we're heading. Right, so so what you you mentioned with the social networks and, and these kinds of services, I mean they're in it only to collect data on us, right? So they 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 want us to create the content and then they're sort of studying us. It's like an experiment, and then they're selling ads uh, to their uh, to their real customers who really just want to get into our pocketbooks because they want to figure out how to sell their stuff to us as as cheaply as possible. Which is a I mean that's a great service. Um, but I, th I think social media will probably, especially now when we're talking about censoring and, and things like that too, it will probably move towards a much more decentralized model where there sort of it is no uh, no bottleneck. There, there's no controller uh, to, to censor speech or to uh, follow you and, and collect data on you, but in, instead where... Where it could be, I don't know, where, where people say they tip you for content or or what have you. I mean, all, all of those different types of models instead where it's about content creation. I think very often entrepreneurs and, and others, when there's a hype, uh, there's herd mentality. So they, they move in one direction and it seems to work and then everybody's going in that direction. So the internet has become that way uh, basically thanks to Google, right? So everything on, on the web is supposed to be free, which means we are the products. Um, and then everybody's launching free stuff and they're all trying to uh, get to be, be the biggest one in any sector because then they can start to really cash in on the data they've collected, at least so they think, right? Um, I, I think this, this is in general a pretty poor model. And I think the problem for Silicon Valley um, and and other tech innovators is that they haven't really considered the entrepreneurship aspect of it, right? So they're, they're stuck in, in the engineering uh, part of, of developing products, but they haven't really thought about uh, how to create value and how this is valuable to the user, or sometimes even who is the user. They don't even know that sometimes. Uh, and so that's where I see that the, the great uh space for uh, a newcomer or an opportunity to start something new to actually uh, think about the value of the interaction itself right because now they're using interaction as a means to get more data uh, but i think the interaction and how people learn from each other and and inform each other and help each other uh th there's a lot of value in that and i think people are getting more and more used to paying a cent here and a cent there for these little services, right? So where you have people basically tipping pe other people for writing great content, right? You can do that in small scale. So you can produce beautiful tweets, say, or or short articles and people can tip you for it. And that could be a very decentralized type of economy where 
you don't really have to steer the content because it's not a shouting match. It's not about who gets to the F word first. It's not about who can who gets to call the other guy Hitler, right? The, like very often the discussions online, they usually end up there unless they start there, right? Whereas I think a lot of people are interested in quality content and we've sort of ended up with a lot of crap content. So there's that means that there's an opening and an opportunity to to create a different type of platform where people can create good content for each other and and where good content is rewarded. So it, again, I mean, a, a sort of marketplace where we serve ourselves by serving others and not this other sort of centralized situation and centralized system where the owner of the system uh, gets all the benefits and gets to decide how we're interact. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right there. And I, and I think uh, I'm on a social network called Twitch, which runs on the BSV Bitcoin blockchain. And basically, to, it's very similar to Twitter, but to, if you like something there, it's, it's five cents. I think if you post something, it's two cents. Um, you, you, can have, you, can, you can do this thing where you're, if people are trolling you, you can have them that, where it's required that they pay a toll to be able to troll you. Um, so it's really interesting, uh, that network. And, and I, I, I feel like things like cryptocurrency where you can make small transactions like a penny or five cents, like say you could pay a few cents to do a search on the internet and not be tracked and traced like you do with Google could be very interesting. And I, I feel like cryptocurrency could potentially open that door, although the onboarding into crypto at this point is still somewhat difficult. You, yeah, and you also you, have the cost and the latency and everything like that in many cryptocurrencies. So they're they're not I mean some of them are are better for this types of, of microtransactions than others. Right. So I think Ethereum is trying to to become that type of cryptocurrency and nano is developed to uh, handle very small, very fast uh, transactions. So so there are such alternatives, but there's no there's no standard yet. And of course there's no a lot of people, like you said, a lot of people are not even using cryptocurrencies at all. So, so that might be a problem. And this is this is actually pretty fascinating because I, I wrote a a master's thesis back in '99 uh, in informatics be- before I started my systems development career. That was on uh, micropayment systems on the internet uh, and, and trying to figure out how what would be required from such a system in order to for it to to work well and, and be adopted by by uh, people, buyers and sellers on the internet. And it's it's funny how I, I wrote that thesis in back in 99, and now 22 years later, we're still struggling with figuring out how to do microtransactions in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I wish I knew, because then I would probably produce a solution to <laughs> take over <laughs> the world. <laughs> but... Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's very, I mean, it's part of it. The problem is uh, fiat currencies, uh, that they're simply not not very good at this. Uh, They work well as cash, but online cash is not very useful. Uh, And then you have payment services from credit cards to PayPal and things like that. And they're also, I mean, it's a hassle, right? It's much easier now than it was 20 years ago, of course. But it's still 
it's way too costly per transaction uh, in both time and in money-wise and everything like that. And it's, it's in a sense, too centralized too. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, some type of cryptocurrency-like, some sort of decentralized system would be much better at it. But I think, I, I and I've talked to some of the crypto communities about this before, that they have the they have the invention and they have the technology. They've done really well there, but they haven't done they haven't done really well with the innovation, right? So they haven't made it clear how it's useful and valuable to the the broader audience, so the population at large, right? So most people have no clue how to use Bitcoin, um, and might not benefit a whole lot from using it either. Uh, and yeah, there are some traders who use Bitcoin and you can buy Teslas with Bitcoin, right? But I mean, what they should do is instead of instead of focusing almost, I would say, completely on things like anonymity and encryption and, and security and that sort of thing, a good entrepreneur would find a balance, right? So they would find the, what, what the consumer values and then from there would sort of find a hopefully a right mix between all those different values so that it's easy to use um, so that consumers see real value in actually just trying to right whereas if if it's costly if every transaction is costly and and it's hard to do it takes time it takes a lot of uh electric power and whatnot else all of these things uh those are going to be obstacles right so th those are going to be uh barriers to entry for a lot of people uh, whereas those what you need in order to get a new type of service like this um to get it adopted by a lot of people you need to lower those barriers as much as possible and that might might mean uh lower security it might mean uh, a system that is not quite as reliable. Uh, I don't know, but technology-wise, perhaps a faster transaction, even though some transactions uh, disappear or are wrong, might be of, of greater value to consumers in general than a transaction that takes time, but it's super secure. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right on that. And I think part of the problem, at least when I first cryptocurrencies is you're kind of there's a lot more responsibility on the consumer and i think consumers uh don't always want that much responsibility with controlling their funds i mean if i lose my password to my bank i can drive down the road to my bank show them my id and get them to reset my password if i lose my crypto password my funds might just be totally lost right and i mean that's that's a good reason to not have all your funds in 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 crypto, especially if it's on one account, right? Because yep. then you're totally screwed. Uh, and I mean, I'm not saying that the that it should be uh, insured by the government or anything like that. But I mean, the the role of the entrepreneur is really to it is the innovation. It's bringing value to the consumer, right? So and and then you have to figure out what the consumer actually wants. When you have uh, tech enthusiasts producing uh, a solution, you or engineers, you you typically get a a, a really great solution. 
but the question is for whom, right? So is it actually of value the way it is produced? Well, it might might be really well produced. The technology might be awesome. The, the encryption might be just magnificent. Uh, the system might have no flaws, whatever, or any of those things. But then it turns out that no consumers don't actually care that much about that, that they don't care if they, they lose a transaction here and there, but but they can do it very easily, or it's just one push on a button or something and then and then it's done. And there's no wait times. I have no clue personally what people want out of a, a payment system like this. But there's I would say in, even though uh cryptocurrencies have been uh super successful they have not become monies, right? Even online. And and there's a reason for that. And I I, I, I would think that it is because there is a lack of innovation. Uh, there's it's great technological solutions, but but rather poor, at least yet so far, right, right, uh, pretty poor entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right on that. You, you, the other day you had a uh a tweet storm, I believe, is what they call it, or, or a threaded a thread on Twitter about intellectual property, and I was very interested in that because I've I've been learning more about intellectual property and uh, the pros and cons and things like that, and I I wanted to know if we could touch a bit on that because I I thought what you said was very concise uh, and very understandable. Um, can you explain, I'm trying to think of a place to start. Like, for example, I, I, if I watch the show Shark Tank, there's a bunch of uh, venture capitalists ready with money to spend on these entrepreneurs. And oftentimes, one of the, the first things they ask is, do you have a patent on your idea or invention? Mm-hmm. And um, But on the other hand, there's people like yourself who don't think that intellectual property should be protected by uh, government authority can you explain how the interplay between intellectual property and entrepreneurship might work sure i mean my argument is really a a matter of of economics right so so i think that patents and all these intellectual property rights so-called uh really distort the economy And, and that's that means that consumers suffer uh, and will suffer for for a long time because the wrong things are being produced. So scarce resources are put into producing things that we don't really like as much and really don't really want as much as we otherwise would have gotten. Okay, so that's that's my starting point. Typical economist starting point. Uh, there are several arguments you can make uh, pro or con intellectual property, and very often it it goes into ethics. Right? Do you have a right to what you create and and things like that? I mean, those are interesting questions too, but that's not really where where I address these things. Right? So, first of all, when when I advise an entrepreneur, I too would tell them to go for something that is protectable. Right? Get a patent if you can. Um, and if you have a patent, well, I mean, then you're safe because no one has a right to copy what you did. That doesn't in itself mean that the system is very good, right? Of course, you should go for for whatever is to your personal benefit, right? But it doesn't mean that the system itself is is particularly good. Um, 
So the, the problem with patents is, well, there are several problems with patents, but, but one is that by patenting things, um, and of course you, you can't patent everything, right? So, so by saying that certain things can be patented and others cannot, you're already steering investment away from things that cannot be patented towards what can be patented. And this is obvious, right? Because if you if you have an idea and you don't really know if if uh, if you can make money off of it, but it's patentable, well, then you get a little more time and you don't have to figure out how to make money off it. And it's better to invest there because then you can just get a patent and then it's yours and it's you can uphold that that monopoly, which is what it is. Whereas if you invest somewhere else. Uh, then you need to figure out how to monetize the idea. You need to keep it quiet, keep it safe, um, uh, keep it secret, right? Because if so, un- otherwise someone else can copy you. So what this means is that a lot of research and development will go into anything that is patentable. And we see this a lot in in, in big pharma. So here you, you have, I mean, as soon as a, a patent is about to expire, they tend to... Uh, invent a new version of the drug where they where they sort of they change the active substance a little bit so it has basically the same effect um but it's not exactly the same which means they and this as they own the patent of the original stuff they can be close enough to get a new patent um so they're, they're not, they know how to not violate the the previous patent right so so you have um I can't recall the the name of the the company, but uh, the the uh, the drug Nexium, for instance. Uh, that there was a previous drug, which I also forget the name of, uh, which did exactly the same thing, uh, but it was sort of the previous generation. They had a patent of that, and as, as that patent was about to expire, they invented uh, Nexium instead, which is slightly different, uh, in order basically to extend the patent to keep others out. Uh, and this this means you get a lot of investments into this pretty from the, from a consumer's perspective it's pretty worthless stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So this new drug is not necessarily a lot better than the previous one. So what you've you've created is first the first drug you have a monopoly and you can sort of maximize your profits. No one else can do anything at all until that uh, that patent expires. They can look at what you're doing, but they can't copy it. And then you extend it by investing in specific uh, research intent, intended only to extend that patent. Right? So you can, you can get more monopoly profits. Now, it's not clear why the consumer would be better off by getting a second generation of this drug instead of getting some other drug. right? So, yeah. so it, it, dis, it distorts uh, where these investments are being made. And we can see in big pharma, people are... are usually mentioning it as an argument for patents that it's so expensive to develop a new drug. Yeah, it is so expensive to develop a new drug, but that is with a patent, right? There are plenty of low-hanging fruits uh, that might not be patentable, that are not being pursued at all because you can't get a patent, right? So, right. So the patent itself increases the cost of developing the drugs. Which is uh, again economics. It, it it seems to be the other way around, right? It sh- you think that logically it should be the other way around, but it turns out it's this is this is the way it is. 
right? So uh, one side effect of this is, I'm not sure if you've heard, but there have been several campaigns by uh, businesses in the, in the pharma industry have lobbied Congress um, to either outlaw or, or make uh, vitamins prescription-based. Now, most people go, well, why would you need, why would you want to make vitamins prescription-based? Well, it's a matter of protecting their profits, right? If, if you need to go, go and see a doctor get to get a prescription to get vitamin C, right? So it's not over the counter anymore. Well, then the doctor might as well uh, write a prescription for an, a real drug, so to speak, right? So they're raising the cost of using vitamins, which really makes people less healthy because they will um, be de deficient in all kinds of vitamins that otherwise they would have gotten easily in Walmart or wherever, right? So there's another yeah. distortion that happens because of this system. Uh, so, I mean, there are many of these things that are just so getting at it from, from my entrepreneurship perspective, where the whole point of any production is to create value for consumers. And as we started out talking about how you serve yourself by serving others, well, if there is a, a monopoly privilege that you can get your hands on if you're the first one, and then you can exclude everybody else and you can just maximize profits, you're not really benefiting the consumer to benefit yourself, right? This is at the consumer's expense. So, uh, I mean, another distortion is, is, of course, a patent is for the first one. Right, so whoever first is first to apply for a patent on a new idea, uh, whether it's a new drug or whatever, they get the patent, and then no one else can can do anything about that. They can't they can't copy the idea. They can't be close enough because then they can be taken to court and everything. Which means you probably you get a whole lot more investment into innovations or inventions than you otherwise would. Why? Well, because if you can secure these patents you also at the same time make sure that no competitor can get into that space, right? Yeah. Which means it's suddenly, it's so much more lucrative to just push a lot of millions into your R&D budget and try to figure out all crazy kinds of ideas and get patents for those ideas because whether or not you're gonna use them, whether or not you think there's a product there, well, maybe there is. Right? So just a chance that there might be, you get a monopoly. And it could be the case that your competitors are thinking of going in this direction and they might be able to think of a new fancy device or a new drug or whatever for consumers. Then it's better for you, isn't it? To invest millions in this, get a patent so that they can't get there first. Well, this is definitely not in consumer's interest. Right? This is just about killing ideas and, and, and making sure that the competition doesn't, doesn't get to serve consumers. So that there, there are so many things with, with this system that, and we haven't even talked about whether ideas at all should be property and things like that, right? But, mm -hmm. but just the, the distortions caused by the system is just, it's immensely costly. I, where would we be if, if businesses could not seek these monopolies uh, which are handed out by the government, right? Yeah. Well, we would have solved a lot of other 
other things. We would probably have, instead of, I mean, to use one example, instead of having really, really expensive attempts at treatments for cancer, that using all these patented, what have you, right? Uh, lots of, of chemistry involved here and lots of R&D. I mean, there, there are some people are arguing more or less persuasively, I mean, depending on who it is and so forth, that you can do with changing the, your diet, uh, using certain, um, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but vitamins or hormones and stuff like that, which are cheap, over-the-counter, and, and not patented. You can use th th these things perhaps as effectively. But are they used? No, they're not. Why? Well, because you want to patent a drug, and of course those patented drugs are pushed out, and then you have the whole um, insurance uh, system in, in this country where, where well, the patient doesn't actually pay it anyway, right? The, the insurance company does, and so everything is just totally screwed up. Yeah, yeah. There's many distortions along the way, and I mean, getting to the doctor-patient relationship, that's a a whole nother distortion where, where things are steered in a particular direction. But it, it sounds like that you, you're kind of, you're making the argument that a lot of funds and energy and resources are steered in a particular direction towards invention rather than innovation, which you had distinguished earlier. Innovation is, you know, making the actual practical product and getting first to the market perhaps. Whereas invention, all this with patents, it's, it's steered mostly towards ideas and and protecting uh, versus right, right. The, because the, way around. the system is yeah the system is based on on the on the, the the false assumption that the idea matters, whereas whoever knows anything about entrepreneurship, as we talked about before, they know that the idea doesn't matter all that much. It's about the implementation. It's about whether you can make the idea into a good or service or an experience for consumers. That consumers really value because then you have a chance of covering your cost and, and earning a profit right but patents patents are not for using for for implementing it in a certain certain way they're for the idea right so smartphones is a good example where uh, every little thing in your smartphone is patented by some company and they're all paying each other for this stuff right so apple is really good at at a patenting stuff and then taking everybody to court, right? So they have have had this uh, policy since basically forever. Uh, so competitors of the first iPhone, they needed to try to innovate around the iPhone's patents, which it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of uh, capital and it's it's really hard, of course. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're kept... Uh, at a disadvantage by the patent, which is sort of the, the point of the patent, right? Uh, but inventing around something instead of using the idea is, is super expensive. Uh, and the same thing, I mean, Android, it's a, it's a free operating system. Uh, well, it's still based off of a number of, of inventions by Microsoft, among other companies, right? So, so they pay a royalty fee to Microsoft um, in order to offer Android for free, which of course is an additional cost, but they, they need to use these ideas. And I mean, if you go into any software and go to sort of the about uh, page, you'll see a, a list of different patents used in that software, 
Well, yeah. I mean, as as user, you you don't give a damn, right? You're using that software because it looks and feels in a certain way. It provides you with a certain service, right? It's, it's your user experience. Whether that's built on a certain idea or not doesn't really matter. So the the, the problem is with this distortion, of course, is that there's a lot of money to be made with just having an idea first. Yeah, but the, yeah. the idea might never materialize. Then my idea might never be used in a product that benefits consumers. Now that can't be the purpose of, of patents, right? You know, you're you're sort of a in in a way I would think uh, like an entrepreneur of ideas. Perhaps I I don't know if if that's correct, but like when you write a book or produce something like that that has a copyright marked on the first page do, do you think about through these ideas about intellectual property and and how does it change your practice if you're if you were to market an idea or or something like that like a book or does it at all well i'm well it it doesn't to some extent because when i publish books like the books i have published they're published by a publisher and they maintain the copyright Right, so it's. I think it's formally mine, but it's something weird. So I I own the copyright of the book, but they own the rights to copy the book. So something something weird. So I don't actually have a right to the content un until they release it. Right. So just just in order to get published, I have to just agree with all this stuff. Uh, so in that sense, it it doesn't really matter all that much. Um, had I. Had I had the chance, and I mean, I, I will publish a book with the Mises Institute that will come out this fall sometime. And they do not uh, claim copyrights, right? So I, I, I don't know how they're going to, going to publish it. We haven't discussed it. Uh, but I'm, I'm guessing that they will say published by the Mises Institute or something, and then it will say, please use this in sort of a an honorable way or something. You may right. copy and use the contents, but we ask you not to not to take the whole book and copy it and sell it for yourself. Right. I think they're probably going to sell this pretty much at cost anyway, but but I mean they're they're going going to probably post a PDF on the website and all this stuff. And that 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 it I I it doesn't bother me. And it's actually the other way around because I write uh, this stuff to get the ideas out there. So I want people to read this stuff. Uh, so if a book is offered for free, then I think that is awesome. And I think there, for many of these, these sort of creative acts, people have, because of the copyright and patent systems, they have just assumed that they are there, which of course is true. Um, so they haven't really thought this through much, right? So, so that's why people get really upset. Like I think it was a Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich got really, really upset when when people started sharing music files online because they didn't get royalties anymore. Um, so, th so they're dependent on royalties. But you have other artists who have discovered that well, you have the big gatekeepers in music, the labels, the, the record label, labels. If you don't get a contract with them, you're basically shut out, right? Until YouTube. So 
uh, you have a bunch of art, art artists who started posting their music on YouTube, and some of them just took off because people liked the content. Well, they don't really get paid a whole lot for that, or maybe maybe they can through ads or whatever, but but not as much as as um, releasing a record or two and having a global marketing campaign. But it turns out that they can make a lot of money by uh, by offering live gigs. So they put on concerts where people might even crowdfund to put on the concert and then they buy merchandise and swag and all this other stuff. And there's money in that, but not in the music. So it could very well be that many of these things um, are not actual the actual products in themselves. I mean, they, they are what you want to do and they are what you are good at doing, but they're not the source of income. They're a means to the source of income. So in, in my own case, if I would write a lot of content for free, which I do on Twitter, like you mentioned, I also uh, like articles at the Mises Institute and, and things like that. They're totally free. I don't get paid for that at all. Uh, uh, but what it does lead to is, say, I get invited to be on podcasts. Um, I get to work on my brand, quote unquote. Um, I might get uh, invitations to do speeches for a live audience and people might want to do Q and A's and they might, might want to pay for it. Right. So there, there are other ways of making money and these are, these are different business models, right? The different ways of, of getting paid for what you're offering. And the problem with many of these creative industries is that because of the patent and copyright systems, which are just monopoly privileges handed to you by the state, because of these, they have simply not uh, bothered with that part of entrepreneurship. And that's the most important part of entrepreneurship, how to figure out to how to produce as much value as possible for consumers and getting a cut, right? So making it worth your own while. But this has not been part of it. Instead, they live in the, the fantasy that, that, oh, if you ju they just produce nice music and it's played on the radio, then you have this whole apparatus of, of music labels and radio networks and the state and everybody, and they're paying royalties. Well, that just means that you're producing the music, but you're not thinking about how to actually make that music valuable to others and to yourself. So you're not serving others and thereby serving yourself. You're just producing the music for yourself, and then you demand to get rich because you produce music. I mean, that's not how the world works. And that's really that's selfish, um, and I I think it's a I think it's a little bit repugnant actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking there, I I uh, I got a little bit inspired. I, I have published a self published a couple of books, and and maybe I could make more money just by putting them on my website and and uh, monetizing it some other way. Uh, than collecting a you know fifty dollar check from royalties on Amazon uh, or something like that. So that's that's very interesting. Makes me think. Um, and that that's what entrepreneurship is about, right? Figuring out, being creating in that sense. So I, we talked about well, that's like forty five minutes ago or something. That it, it it these are different services. If you're selling selling it with a, a price tag and you it's a one. Pay once and and then it's yours a thing or if it's a subscription service right so we basically now the whole society has moved from buying CDs to instead using a streaming service right those are not the same 
the same types of products. Those are different ways of satisfying consumers and different simply because they're they're not only different ways of delivering it because it's music, but it's also different ways of getting paid for it. Right. So maybe it's more valuable to you that to not go to the record store, flip through the CDs and buy one that you have listened to once for outrageous amount of money. Uh, and then you have that at home and you can you can play it whenever you like. And most people with CDs know that they have a few CDs that they never play, right? So they, they paid those 15, 20 bucks or whatever for, for the CDs. And yeah, the, the producer of the music got paid or the record label got paid, but there was no value in it for you as consumer. Or and then the other version would be something like Spotify where you pay a monthly fee and you listen to exactly what you feel like that day. And you discover new music, right? And those those uh, artists get paid instead. So you, so it's it's much more tailored to, and you actually pay for what you listen to, right? So it's it's a it's a better system in in a sense in, in that way, right? That that the listener pays for the chance to listen to all this great music, and they can discover all this other music that they would never have discovered otherwise, and the artists get get paid a little bit because you actually listen to them. So th there you have the connection, right? It's, it's a much clearer connection between the user and who has a valuable experience and therefore money goes to the producer. Yeah. I, I, I can see that. I, and uh, I wonder if there's a way to get even closer from uh, consumer to the creative producer, it, you know, Spotify is in the middle taking a cut, but perhaps with more of the, the decentralized services and maybe if cryptocurrency becomes better, you could put out uh, your music or a book on a, on a blockchain. And every time it's downloaded, a few cents goes into your block, your crypto wallet or something like that. Or maybe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Spotify, they're still playing the old game, right? Cause they have, a contract with the record labels who have uh, contractual monopolies with their artists. Uh, so, so they're still playing that game, but you can have a, a separate system where new artists who have no way of getting a, a, a contract with a label, they put their music out there. And if you, if you play it, you can either tip them or you just pay for each play, right? A, a cent or two or whatever. Right, so you can you can create this um, separate system on the side that might work similarly, right? But could be cheaper or it could be completely voluntary. I don't know. Uh, that would give other artists a chance. Right, right. So, Professor Bielen, I I really appreciate you coming on the call with me today. If people are if I'm well, I specifically am interested in learning more about Austrian economics and entrepreneurship, and hopefully some people on the call as well, or the people listening to this later on, uh, to explore those interests more and to learn more about this way of thinking. Well, um, the Mises Institute website would probably be the first place to look, which is Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. It's the world's largest uh, website with economics content. Um, it it can be a little difficult to 
figure out where to start because there's so much materials. Um, but 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 there are some introductory articles there too. I would think that uh, my forthcoming book in the fall, which is tentatively titled Austrian Economics, a primer, uh, should it, it's intended to be a, a, a crash course and sort of easy, easily digestible introduction to Austrian economics. Um, and it, it, it will be sold by the Mises Institute for just a few dollars, probably put on their website and everything like that too. Um, okay. There are other in introductions to Austrian economics too, but they're usually more expensive and longer probably, but it's more difficult to read. Or at least the, the point of my writing this one is to make it easy to understand to the point. Uh, it should be much in line with... Uh, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, which is sort of a, a standard intro book to understanding economics. But this should be, mine, mine will be about half the length and it will cover Austrian economics specifically and not sort of the economic way of thinking as in, in Hazlitt. Well, that's, that's excellent. Yeah, um, I, I did read Hazlitt's book and he focuses a lot in that book about uh, trade-offs. If you do things one way, then you don't, you can't do it the other way. But I don't think he specifically mentions much about entrepreneurship in there. I'd have to reread it. But I'm I'm excited to to read your book when it comes out. In the meantime, I'll put a link to your Twitter account so people can follow you there. But I want to just thank you again for taking the time out of your day to come and talk with me on this call. Absolutely, it was fun. <laughs>